You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. The Kalopapa National Historic Park was first established in 1980. It was meant to expand the National Historic Landmark of the Kalopapa Leper Settlement. Those afflicted with Hansen's disease were sent into isolation, separated from their family and friends. The community flourished over the many decades and today is still home to about 100 people, though the actual number of patients is less than a dozen. Forty years later, we reflect on life there as the National Park Service is charged with protecting the historic, cultural, and natural resources in the settlement. Today, we hear from the superintendent of the park, Erica Stein Espinola. She talks about the efforts to green the settlement and manage the very special place. The National Park Service's mission is in conservation, land conservation, and in preservation. So one of our big efforts has been in what we've been calling greening, Papa. The Department of Health co-manages the peninsula with us, so they are in a process of closing out some of the landfills that they have managed. They've already closed out a municipal solid waste landfill, but this gave us the opportunity to create a pretty aggressive waste management program and be able to, to really have a more concerted, focused effort at it. Starting around 2010, we've been implementing this program, diverting waste, we have been able to divert at least 84% of the waste that was going to the landfill. And we've diverted it by implementing a recycling program and a composting program. Those are probably the two main aspects of it. And the composting program is producing this compost that's going back into community gardens. And with the recyclables, we stock them all up and then we ship them out on our annual barge. We crush glass and use it as aggregate and backfill. Our program has won a couple of awards even. It's won an Environmental Achievement Award and also a Keep America Beautiful Award. And sort of our next step that we're looking at is towards gasification. So all the waste that we have on the peninsula, or at least a portion of it, we're going to be able to gasify. So we have this micro-autification gasification unit and takes a little bit of diesel to get running. But then after that, it produces its own energy and the end product is a biochar. So we'll be able to deal with more of the waste on site and not have to put it to any landfill, which doesn't exist anymore in Kalaupapa, and we won't have to, you know, ship them off island either or off the peninsula. You folks have two options, right? You take your Opala either by plane and you fly it out of there or you put it on a barge and send it back. Yeah, that's right. So we have a contract right now for our regular household. We call it regular household waste, just the regular waste stream. We do a pickup two days a week and whatever cannot be recycled or composted or stored for our barge operation, we fly out because you can't, there's just some waste you cannot store for a long time. You don't want to store for a long time. So yeah, we we're flying it out by plane right now. So we're really looking forward to that gasification unit so we can reduce our carbon footprint as well. Can you talk about barge day? Because I think that's you know one thing that most people are familiar with, with Kalapapo as you bring in washers and dryers and you know big yeah. items. Yeah, and all of our gas for the year as well. Anything for our historic preservation projects, any lumber, anything that we anything that we plan to do for a year, we need to think about it much further in advance to the summer before because that's our one opportunity to get it onto the peninsula and also our one opportunity to get it off of the peninsula every year. So, it's a really big deal and we, a few years ago, just did a standard repair upgrade to our water system, and so we redid the water tanks, but all that material had to come in on the barge. And so it's just really, it's this interesting added challenge to um, the operation in Kalaupapa and having to plan around this single barge. And the reason why we have one barge is because it's really expensive, the National Park Service and the Department of Health pay for it to come to Kalaupapa. And the, you know, the winter months, we're on the North Shore, right? So the winter months are pretty much not 
accessible via water. So we just have a window of a few summer months where it's feasible to get something like a barge into the harbor. Well, so there's lots to think about as we kind of look down the road, you know, when the last handful of residents, you know, leave Kalopapa, and we know that there are meetings with all the stakeholders that have been happening. What can you share about that and and the future? How often do you meet and what's on the horizon? The National Park Service has been pretty involved in this planning process that is a general management plan, and it's also an environmental assessment. So we're meeting our requirements under the National Environmental Policy Act with that as well. So it's a big environmental document in addition to being a general management plan right now. And that was a really involved public process, and we also included some of the patients on our planning team, Um, And the output of that is still getting finalized, but the output of that provides us with some very general guidance about our operation from the time it's signed into it has a lifespan of about 15 to 20 years. So in that general guidance, we've identified that the vision for the National Park Service's operations in Kalaupapa in the future has an emphasis on partnerships. So we... We have a lot of partnerships already, and we are looking to develop more partnerships and just really have Kalaupapa be this collaborative place. We also have identified that there should be a free option to visit Kalaupapa. We've identified that kids under the age of 16 will be allowed. Under the Department of Health Rules and Regulations, they are not allowed to visit right now. We've also identified that there would be no new access. So right now people get to Kalaupapa by plane or by the trail and very occasionally by boat. So that's how how people access Kalaupapa now is how people would access Kalaupapa in the future. We've also identified that if we have a new need, we would look to utilizing the existing buildings first. So we're really not looking to do really big construction projects in Kalaupapa. Also, infrastructure upgrades, you know, infrastructure just regularly needs updates and repairs and upgrades. And so anything that we would be doing along those lines would be upgrading it to the same level. So or upgrading it to accommodate about the same number of people, right? So, you know, the electrical system needs some repairs. So we're repairing it basically for the community now. Give us a snapshot of the community there. How many staff and how many residents? The Park Service has about 41, 42 employees. Some of those are seasonal employees. I believe the Department of Health has around 35 employees. And there are 12 patients total, maybe about six that are regularly in Kalaupapa right now. And then there's some clergy that's in Kalaupapa as well. And then the U.S. Postal Service has an employee down there. So roughly we have about 100, 110 people of the people that are working and living there. With planning, we've identified that There's going to be a number of subsequent plans that we need to do, like we need to do a visitor use management plan and we need to do a trail management plan and all these things. And most of these plans are going to also be a public process. So there's opportunities for people to help inform the Park Service's direction. On our historic preservation in general, this is, again, one of the other aspects of the Park Service's mission in Kalaupapa. And so... We put a lot of effort into the cemeteries and cemetery management. The cemeteries are very impactful when you come to the peninsula, so it's really important that they're maintained well. I just have to share that recently I've been receiving some really nice compliments from the patients about how good the cemeteries are looking, and so that really means a lot to us. And then, um, of course, we have this cemetery preservation workshop happening right now. We also do historic preservation on the buildings and even the cultural landscape. So we have historical landscape architects who are giving us advice and guidance, and we're doing a lot of research on maintaining the entire landscape and not just the bits and pieces of it, but looking at it more holistically as well. That was Erica Stein Espinola, Park Superintendent of Kalapapa National Historic Park. Since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, 
Access to the settlement has been restricted. No tours are allowed as the population there is at risk and medical facilities are limited. It was back in 2013 that HPR's Noe Tanigawa talked to Kalopapa resident Makio Malo. An award-winning writer, storyteller, and educator, Malo was diagnosed with Hansen's disease at the age of 12, and he was exiled to Kalopapa in 1947. Makio Malo has been featured at the Hawaii Book and Music Festival. He wrote the book, My Name is Makia, a memoir of Kalopapa. I had no understanding of the disease. Few did in 1947 when Elroy Makia Malo was diagnosed with Hansen's disease, a bacterial infection that creates lesions, ulcers, and numbness in the coldest parts of the body, the ears, fingers, nose. Hansen's disease is spread through coughs and sneezes, but 95% of people are naturally immune. Others are not. Malo watched his older brother and sister get bundled off to Hawaii's, quote, leper colony on the north side of Molokai, the isolated landing at Kalaupapa. And then when the day my dad and I were reported to have the disease, and again we went to Dr. Chanun's office. They snipped our ear to get blood samples. And then about an hour later, we were sitting in the waiting room. Dr. Chanun comes and he says, Mr. Marlowe, I have good news for you. You don't have the disease. And then he waited. But I'm afraid, Mr. Marlowe, your son Elroy does. And then before Dr. Chandler said anything else, my dad, he said, oh, doctor, doctor, uh, I'd like my boy go to Kalaupapa today. When Malo arrived, there were about 400 residents at Kalaupapa. Many didn't walk around. They didn't go to the airport walking or Kalawao. They didn't walk around town even. Malo says only five to seven of the patients actually walked the town because walking often led to lesions on their feet. Before he lost his vision, hands, and feet, Malo loved to hunt. I was too active, yeah. The worst part is that our feet don't feel. So more you go, the more fun you have. But in time, the ulcers get worse, the pain increases. That's when my whole world started to crumble, surviving so long. What little chances we had of doing so much, we enjoyed it. When you were in that condition, and you know life is going on on outside, you think, oh, what the heck? I like to go down the bar. I like to drink soda. You know, I like to eat ice cream, you know? We had movies twice a week, three movies. We had three bars open. Not that there were many people who drank, but they'd go there and eat ice cream, candy, and stuff. It was nice to meet some of them. They didn't let the disease hold them down. The sunset of Club Papa smiles through the evening rain, my island of dreams means so much to me. Hansen's disease when is completely curable today. Over 8,000 people were sent to Kalaupapa. Most died there. So hold me close, my darling, and kiss me as lovers do. Then the sunset of Kalaupapa will be a dream. That was Kalapapa resident Makio Malo sharing his story with HBR's Noe Tanigawa back in 2013.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with three new exhibitions at Homa First Hawaiian Center downtown, featuring works by Hawaii artists. More at honolulumuseum.org. It's the end of the year, and like other nonprofits, HPR is asking for donations. So why choose our station? With Public Radio, you know your money makes a difference. Your support helps reporters dig into the stories that need to be told and bring you journalism with context and perspective. And with four stars from Charity Navigator, you know your donation to HPR is in good hands. As we close out 2020, the choice to support HPR is a smart one. Give online, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from ProService Hawaii, offering advice to employers on managing business challenges due to the coronavirus. More information at proservice.com coronavirus. As we approach the end of the year, we reflect on another time, another period of isolation. June of last year marked the 45th anniversary of the end of isolation in the Kalaupapa settlement for leprosy or Hansen's disease patients. The residents who had endured permanent quarantine because of their contagious disease moved into the remote settlement and most died there. We reached out to local historian and author John Clark. He wrote the book Kalaupapa Place Names. He talked with us about the parallels with our seclusion due to COVID-19. They were physically removed from all of their homes. They were, you know, sent to Honolulu where they were processed, and then they were sent over to the Kalapapa Peninsula. And they just lived there for the rest of their lives. And most of them, in fact, almost all of them never saw their families again. And if they had children there, the children were taken away from them when they were infants and given to family or friends or, or to an orphanage, as the case was. Yeah, for someone else to raise. Exactly. I think there was a, a letter that someone wrote, uh, it was a lament for their son, where she talks about the uh, umbilical cord is cut. Yes. And just the, the, the heartache of that separation. Exactly. The babies were taken away from their parents um, as soon as, almost as soon as they were born. There's also another point in the book where I believe they had passed a law saying that if your spouse came down with leprosy, with Hansen's disease, that you could file for a divorce. Oh, yeah. That, I guess that happened a little later, you know, in the history of Kalapapa, but that was true, too, because it was being sent there was just like being, you know, it was like the person died. I mean, the, the lack of contact was absolute, so I guess the law just regarded it as, you know, the person was no longer accessible to the spouse. But there were uh, were spouses who said no, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, and they went down to Kalaupapa to spend the rest of their lives with their loved one. You're right. They were called kokua. You know, kokua in Hawaiian means help. So the kokua were helpers, and most of them were just what you described. They were usually spouses or, or family members, but they actually had to apply to the Board of Health and get permission to be a kokua, and if they did get permission, they were allowed to go there and live with the patient. So talk about this book, that you, your most recent book, because you did something a little different, right? You use letters from the residents of Kalapapa that were sent into the newspapers, so they were Hawaiian-language newspapers. Yes. Well, I named the book Kalapapa Place Names, and place names um, and their mo'olelo, the stories behind the names, have always been of interest to me. So what I did is I, I just made a master list of every place name I could find on the Palapapa Peninsula. And I started looking for those names. I started searching for them in the Hawaiian language newspapers. They're online and they're searchable. So anyway, what happened was, as, as I was searching for articles about and stories about these place names, then all of these letters and articles and all of this stuff that from the patients themselves started coming up on my searches. And the amount of information that I gathered, especially, you know, directly from the patients themselves, writing back to the editors in Honolulu was just phenomenal. And your book is dedicated to the memory of your great-great-grandmother. Yes, that, you know, Catherine, that's, it's quite an interesting story. I had done all of this research and gotten all of the articles translated. I wrote the book. I submitted my manuscript to the UH Press, and the book was already moving. It was already moving through the production pipeline. And out of the clear blue, I got a call from a relative 
here on Oahu, and she had a question about family genealogy. So anyway, we talked story for a little while, and then she asked me, she said, well, what are you working on right now? And I said, oh, a book on Kalapapa. And she says, do you know that you had a relative that was a patient that was sent to Kalapapa? And I said, no, I had absolutely no idea. So anyway, she told me the story, and it turned out to be my great-great-grandmother, and so I dedicated the book to her. And that's Emily? Yes, Emily. And gosh, were you able to try and do a deep dive on her story and what her experience was? (laughs) It was, well, even more interesting than the story I just told you is that when my relative here on Oahu told me her name, Emily, I recognized it immediately because I had seen it in one of the articles that was in the book. And the article that had her name in it was an article that listed patients who had died in the year 1885. So using that and using her name, I tried to track down information about her, but there wasn't much. There wasn't much at all. When I was researching my Beaches of Maui County Beach book back in the the late 1980s, I actually went down to Kalapapa because they have beaches down there. And I walked up and down the trail on uh, several different occasions and spent the night down there and talked with the superintendent. I, you know, talked to the patients and I did my thing uh, checking out all the beaches on the peninsula. So the beaches are what took me there initially, but once I got there, of course, it was just total immersion on everything that had happened there from, you know, 1866 on. Well, I know this State Archives is trying to digitize all the records uh, from all the residents there, so they will be available to relatives so that if you wanted to do research that you would be able to do that. Oh, well, that's that's really good information. Thank you for letting me know. I didn't realize that. You know, what I tried to do was not to repeat what everybody else had already done and, you know, the research that had gone on before me, but I focused on the Hawaiian language newspapers as a, a rather unique resource, and I think I got a lot of information to add to the overall history of Kalapapa. Now, I know they're working on a memorial of the 8,000 residents who live down there. Do you think you're going to try and make it down there when when they dedicate that, knowing that you have a connection there? Oh, of course. Yeah, the the memorial's in a field right across from Father Damien's church over in Kalawao, um, his St. Filomeno church. Just on the Malka side of it, there's a nice big open field there, and and that's the site for the memorial, which right now they're fundraising for. But anyway, yeah, I'd love to get down there if, if they can accommodate everybody that wants to go. Have you been there to try and find your great-great-grandmother's tombstone? I don't know if she's buried there. She is buried there, but she's in an unmarked grave. So as far as I know, the, the site of her burial is not recorded anywhere. I haven't been able to track it down through any of the resources that are available right now. There are other patients, too, that are in unmarked graves, but I believe the memorial is going to, as long as they can document that someone was there and someone died there, their name will still be included on the memorial, whether they found a gravestone for them or not. One thing you might be interested to know is that in the history of leprosy in the Hawaiian Islands, we all think that everybody was sent to Kalaupapa beginning in 1866, and that's the only place that there were settlements, but from the very beginning, the patients and the families lobbied for local segregation, and they wanted to establish leprosy settlements on the main islands, um, and not just at at Kalapapa and Molokai. So anyway, there were a lot of recommendations in the legislature, and there were were even uh, field trips over to Kauai, to uh, Kalalau Valley to see if that would work as an alternate site for local segregation. But in the end, in the end, none of the alternate sites were approved and everybody just got sent over to the Kalapapa Peninsula. You know, one of the things that really came through to me is that the majority of the people, the majority of the patients realized that they were sent there for the rest of their lives, and they weren't negative about it. I mean, there there were a lot of things that they didn't like. They wished they could change it. They wished they could have had local segregation as opposed to just this one remote area that, that nobody else could get to. But they made the best of it there. They tried to be positive, and I think that comes through loud and clear when you when you read 
the articles and you read what they've written, that they they just they just tried to live their lives as, as best they could and made the best out of a, a not so good situation. And you know the the Hawaiian language newspapers they started off in 1834, even well before the settlement was established over there. And the Hawaiian language newspapers kept the patients, the the residents at Kalapapa informed of exactly what was happening on the other Hawaiian islands, you know, outside of the Kalapapa Peninsula. So all of the holidays, you know, whether it was the 4th of July or New Year's, or even in the 1900s, like May Day, King Kamehameha Day, all of those holiday celebrations, they were celebrating them there with parades and sporting events and, and all kinds of stuff, just like the rest of the folks in Hawaii were. So yeah, they were upbeat, they were positive, they just tried to make the best of where they were. That was historian and author John Clark talking about his recent book, Kalapapa Place Names, and the parallels of the permanent isolation and our current pandemic. In this time of distance learning, students at the University of Hawaii were able to screen a documentary about Alice Augusta Ball earlier this year. She was the first black female chemist to earn her master's degree at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. She's a subject of The Ball Method, a short narrative film that debuted at the Pan-African Film Festival in Los Angeles. You may remember hearing about this on Science Friday when Ira Flato interviewed film director Dagmawi Abebe about the project. The show aired in early February. Here's a short excerpt. Alice Ball was a, an African-American woman born in 1892. She went to the University of Hawaii, which used to be called the College of Hawaii back then. How did she get to focused on helping people with leprosy? Um, well, it started with her thesis, uh, her, ma- her master's thesis, and uh, Dr. Harry Holman, who was an assistant surgeon in Kali Hospital, where they used to take care of patients with leprosy, he read her thesis, and he saw that the method that she was using on the kava plant on her thesis was could be helping, could help them get uh, the injectable solution that he was looking for for the leprosy patients. So you chronicle in the book how she sort of stumbled on the answer to making the injectable solution. How, how close is that to the truth? I mean, I know you have literary license and writing a <laughs> plot for a movie, but were you, yeah. were you able to find out what really happened? Yes, I, I think uh, one of the important process of, for her to find it was letting the, uh, the chomugu acid uh, stay in cold for overnight. And so that was one of the things that I could show visually in the film without getting too deep into the chemistry. Um, so that's basically what I, had, I was trying to connect. And in fact, we have, uh, to give a little pe- people a t- little taste of the film, we have a, that pivotal scene in which he has a flash of insight. Dr. Holman, we have to freeze it. Sorry. That's how we get the esters to crystallize. We've been doing it wrong the whole time. Heating it doesn't make it faster. It only degrades the acid before it has time to combine with ethanol. If, if we can stop the ferry today, they might have a chance. I'll arrange a test for tomorrow morning, okay? Wow, and of course that worked, right? Yes, <laughs> yes, um, yeah. Because I believe that leaving it in the cold was preventing the acid from degrading, so that it had enough time to uh, for the acid to crystallize and be filtered. Um, and that's that's basically how she was able to find the treat. 
That was director Dagmawi Abebe, thanks to Science Friday producer Charles Burquist and host Ira Flato. Abebe short film is currently making the rounds on the film festival circuit and was available on Amazon Prime Video earlier this year. The Ball Method was also screened at the University of Hawaii Hamilton Library as part of Black History Month. Alice Ball's research with the oil of the chalmuga tree as a treatment for leprosy fascinated retired UH librarian Paul Wermiger. He's working on her biography and was behind an exhibit at Hamilton Library before the closure because of COVID-19. But our current temporary isolation gives rise to this bit of Kalapapa history tied to the chalmuga tree and Alice Augusta Ball. She was probably the leading figure in making life for leprosy victims. And matter of fact, she probably was the first person in the world to give leprosy patients true hope that they could be cured. And there were, like I said, the early cases could be cured. Advanced cases, no. That had to wait for the sulfa drugs. And why is it so important for you as a librarian and, a, and a, a lover of history and stories that she gets a recognition for uh, her contributions here? Well, I think it's more than that. It's just a human nature reaction. When you see an injustice, you want to try to change that. And that's how, when I found out that nobody knew Alice Ball, she was not in the literature at all, that nobody gave her credit that really upset me and still bothers me to this day. So whatever recognition I can scrounge up, um, that will be paying our dues, humanity's dues, to a woman who really did so much for other people. People had known that the Shmugra tree was used to treat leprosy you know, 2,000 and more years ago. Actually, some people believe it was even used by the Egyptians going way, way back. And again, that kind of points to the usefulness of folk medicine. There is some, there's some basis for it because if people try something and it works, it works. It has medicinal value. Yes. And of course, they didn't understand why you know, the chemical compound, but just that it helped their skin. It probably helped people with early leprosy. And so it was the fact that I don't think she started out, her mission wasn't to find a cure for leprosy. It was that a physician presented her with a problem they were having in that he felt, and I think Holloman knew, that there was a value in Shimogra, but their mode of using it was wrong. It was painful, upsetting, and so he thought if they could get an injectable form of Shimogra oil. It isn't actually the oil itself, it's the components they remove from Shimogra oil. There's two acids and they are the ones that have that antibacterial uh, effect. So she was trying to fix a chemical problem. She saw it from a chemical, from a chemist's point of view. And uh, actually, probably her going to Kalihi, you know, to as part of her her master's thesis, she saw firsthand what how people were suffering from the disease. So I think that was probably another motivation too, than that she worked so hard to finally make that chemical discovery just by sheer grit, I guess. And in your research, you found that uh, while she discovered this ball method of using this oil, uh, that she wasn't given the proper acknowledgement you know, that her contribution to, to science and uh, what she discovered just wasn't acknowledged. Yes, it was easily overlooked, I think. Um, if we look back at the conditions then, she was female, she was young, she was African-American. All those were not traits that you associate with somebody who's found a cure. Um, and then, 
on top of it, there was the pressure that um, the university or the College of Hawaii was under at that time then from people demanding, pleading for, you know, samples for this. And so they just rushed ahead. Um, Dr. Dean, Arthur Dean, picked up what she had done and went with it and just, you know, went on and forgot about who had actually started it. Nobody bothered to go back and say, well, who made this? And not until 1922 did Holloman publish that article that brought it to light. But by then, it was just common, common known that, well, you know, Dean did this and Dean did that, and nobody really put Alice where she should have been. So what was the Ball method became the Dean method? And it wasn't by Dean himself. He never called it the Dean method. So we have to be fair to Dean. It wasn't that he robbed her. It was when he published it, as you know, when you publish something, then people want to refer to it in their work. They don't go through the long process of this is how, you know, so-and-so mixed this and this together. So they nicknamed it the Dean method. And everybody who read the, you know, the science chemistry journals would know, of course, what that means. Arthur Dean did it. So it wasn't that it was a malicious thing. It was just how things happen. If you do something, somebody will write about you, but then they name it after you. Right. But unfairly, unfair. nobody gave uh, Alice Ball credit for what she discovered. Because nobody knew about her. You know, she did it and then disappeared. And actually physically, but also um, in people's minds, because she was just, you know, she was there for a year and a half and then gone. And you have created a exhibit up on the fifth floor in her honor just to make sure that her story gets told. Yes, and I also fund, funded an Alice Ball scholarship at UH, and now it's, it's in its third year, and students are benefit by it because I wanted to try to encourage more women and people of color to go into the sciences. And so we honor Alice Ball, the first black female chemist to obtain her degree at the University of Hawaii and her groundbreaking research on the Chalmuga tree, one of the first treatments to try and cure leprosy. Retired UH Hamilton librarian Paul Wormiger plans to write Ball's biography to keep her memory alive. He says in Hawaii, February 29th has been officially declared Alice Ball Day, but laments because of leap year in the past, she hasn't consistently been given proper credit. We continue the story of the Chalmuga tree and its ties to Kalapapa. You can find one growing at the UH Manoa campus next to Bachman Hall. We were there earlier this year with the Master Gardeners group that set up an exhibit to draw attention to its storied past. We were not far from a flagpole on a blustery day in February. Gardeners Capono Ryan and Julian Lipshire recalled they first discovered the tree as part of a tour on notable specimens on the Manoa campus. That was an introduction to a tree which was used as a treatment for leprosy, thanks to UH chemist Alice Ball. Master Gardener Julian Lipshire picks up the story. For probably six years, I'd been volunteering over at the National Park at Kalaupapa, working with their cultural resource management group uh, on restoration of old grave sites. So I had, you know, an opportunity to think about Master Gardener Group, Shalmugra Tree. Was there a Shalmugra Tree at the settlement? And called up uh, their natural resource management chief and asked about that. And they thought, well, one of the patients thought there might have, could have been, and uh, we don't know where. And it was, it's unclear if they're 
is one now. You know, it's, it's part of Cloud Papa's history. St. Damien, Father Damien, would take baths as part of, I guess it was the Goto method, using the oil from the Shalmugra tree to relieve some of the nerve damage and the pain that was caused by the disease. And of course, Alice Ball, you know, uh, was able to synthesize the oil into a water-based injectable. So a lot of threads came together to knit the National Park Service, CTAR, uh, College of Tropical Agriculture, Human Resources, the Master Gardener, our Master Gardener group, and pop it together, you know, for a story. And this is our story. But your whole intent was to be able to ensure that this tree was included in Kalapapa's history. It is part of their history. And it's part of the, the history of uh, the disease. It's part of uh, Damien's legacy and uh, St. Marianne Cope's legacy. It was part of the legacy of the U.S. Public Health Service that built a hospital there with, at great expense in the early 1900s that failed miserably because they were doing an experiment that further separated people from their community at Kalaupapa. So this, it seemed like a natural confluence of, of effort to bring the Shalmugra tree back to Kalaupapa and to you know, further our knowledge propagation of trees from the Master Gardener program. And uh, Capone, you have a personal story, a connection with Kalapapa. Well, actually I do, but I didn't know that. I mean, at first it started where where we took that tour for the Campus Arboretum. We came across the Chamuga tree and we went, oh my gosh, this is a Chamuga tree. And we went through all that process as Master Gardeners. So if you consider a parallel universe, is I'm working towards the Chamuga tree side of the story but somewhere in the mainland my cousins are working on ancestry and trying to track that down and they find out that we have um, I have a great grandmother who's buried in Kalapapa but as they're coming to that conclusion and I'm coming to the conclusion that I'm going to go to Kalapapa in October they're going to come out in August they said did you know about this and I said no so we went ahead of time to be able to track that down and suddenly it's like I have two sides to the story. I have this this uh, science, love for nature, botany side, and then I have a personal story with my great-grandmother who happens to be buried there, and to be able to get from the health department and from the National Park Services information on her and pictures of her, and I am just moved because for our circumstances, the family had been broken up when um, great-grandma had been taken away and the kids had been fostered out. And so there was always talk about what is this all about? Why did grandma let you go? Why did, why did mom let you go? And that kind of stuff. But it wasn't until we started getting more and more information about the situation on Kalapapa that we actually figured out that, and there was healing for the family, is it was because the Hansen's disease had separated us. And in Hoensa, it's Hana, I mean, you know, kind of mysterious, I cannot talk about it. So there was a silent side to grandma and what happened to great grandma. And, uh, but this whole thing with the Chamuga growing and with my great grandmother just came together. And so it was an awesome, even deeper and special time. I went to a, a meeting with Kalapapa Ohana. I happened to meet my cousins there who are part of the Nihipali family. And they expressed, just to show you how Hawaiians are all tied up somehow. So these are my cousins. And he expressed is that in his ancestry line, in Kalawao and in that area, his family were ones that had been displaced when, when the Hansen thing had come. So there were originally settlers there, Hawaiian settlers there who had to move or could stay, or there were different things. But they were some of the original people that received the, the lepers in the beginning and fed them and took care of them and considered them part of family. So I have it from different sides. I have from my mother's side is my great-grandmother who's buried there. And I have from my, more, more or less from my dad's side. So um, my Calabash side from my dad's side, the people that may have received her. Was your family able to do the research through the, like the state archives and the health department records, that kind of thing? Health, health department and also the the Kalapapa Ohana people as well, and then also 
you know, this Ancestry.com thing is just right. tracking everywhere. And then we went through the legal papers because, you know, now they have the things where in land court, the information is now being translated out of Hawaiian into English. And that was helpful, too, to be able to track the names on the law, on the law and, and the land grants, etc. So you visited her gravesite. And I visited her gravesite. So actually was able to go there, Oli, and, and, and put lay on there. And was um, there's such a... Uh, it's such a peace when you come there. So, you know, people tell you different things about Kalapapa and the sadness. But um, I had gone to my great-grandmother's grave site. I'm doing my due respect and my honors. It's facing towards the ocean. And Richard tells me, turn around. And I said, why? And he says, turn around, just turn around. And I turn around, and there's a, there's a big recreational spot with a, a large uh, playing field and mountains on top and everything else. And he shared with me is they had a life. They had a, a life that was filled with joy and filled with all kinds of other stuff. They had horse races on one part, potlucks here. And so I could see for myself that this was gravesite to one side, to the ocean side and to the mountain side, there was a playground where there was happiness and there was joy. And yes, there was separation and hardship and loneliness and all that breaking up of family. But you also see that there was beauty and grace and joy at that one spot, so I don't know, it all came together for me. And we were reminded that in the early 1900s, there was a population of 1,100 or 1,200 people. So there's a community. And as you know, Kapuna was saying, there was bakeries where food was going, there were marriages, there were children who were born there. To this day, there's a volleyball game on Wednesday evenings uh, right across from where the bar used to be. So yes, it was the separating sickness, but also it was a time where people made the best of a difficult, very difficult situation and brought a degree of fulfillment, happiness, joy, pleasure into their lives, which shouldn't be forgotten. A part of the story at Kalapapa that shouldn't be forgotten, that was Julian Lipscher and Capono Ryan, part of a master gardener's group, working to keep a part of Kalapapa history intact by sharing the story of the Chalmuga tree. The Park Service has propagated seeds from the Manoa tree with plans to replant them at the settlement in a nod to the settlement's history. After some TLC by the master gardeners, we are told the tree at Manoa bloomed last spring, something they say they had not seen happen in quite some time. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Care Choices. Its virtual event, Season of Hope, honors loved ones who have passed and celebrates dreams for the future. A gift to the community with music and more, 5 p.m. tomorrow. HawaiiCareChoices.org. Here in Hawaii, there's a special appreciation for things that are local. And we take that seriously at HPR, where 30% of the programs you hear are made in-house by our own team. Everything from morning cafe to the conversation, bridging the gap to evening jazz. Whether you're a news junkie or a music lover, HPR's local programming keeps you rooted in our shared island community. Learn more about our shows at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaiian Airlines. Learn more at hawaiianairlines.com about new safety procedures and an updated neighbor island flight schedule. Earlier this year, we featured a traveling exhibit about Kalopapa that was featured at Windward Community College. Part of it is on display now at Iolani Palace. At the time, we talked to Val Monson, who was with the group Ka Ohana o Kalopapa, which is focused on making sure that the history of the settlement lives on. She's focused on raising money for a memorial there that will list the names of the thousands of residents who lived at the settlement. Monson talked to us recently about a fundraising concert honoring the musicians of Kalopapa, which is available to screen until January 3rd. You know, when I first started going, 
to Kalapapa in 1989, one of the things that really surprised me was how much a part of the community music was. And, you know, as I did more reading, it just seemed music was was a part of the community even in the even in the early days, you know, when they had choirs and bands. And I just feel that this was a way it helped people to heal. It brought joy where maybe you might not have expected to find that. And I just felt that, you know, as I got to think about it more and more, and I just thought, you know, music was just such an important part of this community. You know, and the musicians, of course, who wrote so many of these songs, you know, have been forgotten over the years. So you're paying tribute to them. And you were also trying to come up with a way to be able to fundraise for the monument. Exactly. So the concert itself is free, but it is serving as a fundraiser for the Kalapapa Memorial that will display the names of, you know, the nearly 8,000 people, you know, who were taken from their families and sent away. You know, those many of those people have also been forgotten. So, you know, I mean, what Ka'ohana o Kalapapa, you know, certainly one of our mission, part of our main, main mission is to remember everybody, to remember everybody by their name and people's accomplishments, which have often been forgotten in this history. That was Val Monson talking about the fundraising concert that is available to screen for free. It's part historical film, part virtual musical event that's meant to reach across the globe and keep the story of Kalopapa alive. We hope you've enjoyed our look at Kalopapa's past, present, and future. That wraps it up for today. We'll be back tomorrow before taking a break for the Christmas holiday. And we would like to hear from you. Do you have a story about Kalapapa? Share it on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. The sunset of Kalapapa Sunset of color.